It's obviously very exciting to see, very cool to see people just getting baptized and just making that public declaration. Uh, also cool to see all of our youth in here coming to support their friends. So they're, they're making their way out so they can go back to their area so that if you see some movement over there, that's what's going on. Um, if, you, if we've never met before, uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors on staff. Again, thank you so much for coming out and thank you for those watching online as well. As we get started this morning, I want you guys to think of this question with me. The question is this. I want you to think of a time where you were warned about something that you chose to ignore. Time you were warned about something that you chose to ignore. So back when I was in seminary, there was a, a parking lot where all of us on staff, or all of us who were part of the seminary class would all park here. And at the end of class, we all always had a decision to make. And the decision we had to make was this. The majority of the people who were here, we all wanted to leave and go this direction to get to the highway to get back to our house. That is what made the most sense. That was the quickest route. But the decision we had was that there was a no left turn sign here. And none of us wanted to go that way. We all wanted to go this way because that was by far the quickest route to where we were going. And so uh, every time class ended, again, all these people who are going to seminary, we're trying to learn about Jesus and we're gonna tell people like we got forced with this, this kind of moral dilemma. And so there were a couple options we had. And so the way we wanted to go, so the little red box is the parking lot. We wanted to go left to get to the highway. That was by far the quickest route. If we were going to obey the sign and not go left, these were our options. Option number one was to go right, and it was gonna loop you all the way around the university to get to your spot. So what was normally about a one minute drive took about eight minutes. And based on your reactions, you guys felt what we felt. Like in our minds, we're like, there's zero chance I'm going this direction, right? It's just too far, that is too big of an ask. I'm not gonna do that. So that was one option we had. The second option we had was to actually go north uh, instead of going this way towards the highway, we'd actually go north, up and around to get down here, which was by far better than going all the way around the university. But as you can see from those red things, those represent four traffic lights that you had to go through. So again, it was just an annoyingly longer route than the one that we wanted to take. So uh, before I was in seminary, I was in my undergrad, I actually had a degree in civil engineering. And so while I was a civil engineer, I literally had classes in traffic engineering where they teach you why you put certain signs the way that you do and where you put them. And so every time I encountered this no left turn sign, my brain knew exactly why it was there. And the reason it was there, there were two reasons. The first reason was when this church, particular church let out, there'd be a lot of traffic that was going this way. And obviously there'd be traffic coming out of here. And if you're the car in the front of the line and you want to turn left, what you do is you cause this major backup because you can't get out very easily. And all of these cars are waiting for you. So whoever designed this said, you know what? We can't have a, a left turn here. You got to make everyone go right. Otherwise it's just going to get too backed up. That was the primary reason. Second reason was because as you notice, there's a little bit of a curve here. And so you don't have what uh, engineers would say is the ideal line of sight. Ideally, this would be perfectly straight. You'd be able to see cars coming from a long ways away. There's a little bit of a curve, not too bad, uh, but you just like if some car was flying through here and you were kind of just slowly turning left, like there could be an accident. And so engineers are always trying to protect anything from going wrong. So they're like, you know what? Let's just be safe. Let's put a no left turn sign there. So I have all of this in my brain. And most of the time, 
Most of the time, I would take the long route. I decided I would do the up and around route that was better than going all the way around. I'd seen enough people get tickets here that I thought, it's not worth it, I'm not doing it. So most of the time, I took the long route. But every so often, right, when I was in a big hurry, or if I was running late, I would do what a lot of us do, and I would justify my decision. I'd say, I know why that sign's there, and there's no cars behind me, so I can turn left right now, right? And I, you know, I, I know that... If, you, if you're not paying attention, like, but I'm, I'm paying attention, I know why it's there, so I'm gonna, like, I'm gonna go out quick and I'm gonna make sure that I'm safe. And right, I justified my decision and I would go for it and I would turn left. Now, funny story about this. So uh, some of you guys don't know this, but every week, whoever is teaching, we have a meeting on Wednesday where like a bunch of us on staff, we all sit in a room together and we kind of share notes about this and we kick some ideas around and try and make this as helpful as we can for everyone. And so we're in this meeting and so I'm sharing this illustration and there are two people in the meeting on our staff who are like, I know exactly what you're talking about. I hate that no left turn sign. I turn left there all the time, right? And so we're in this meeting and they're like, they're relating to this. So I don't want to throw anyone under the bus, so I'm not going to say any names. <laughs> but there were two people in that meeting who confessed to me that they turn left there every single time. So I'm just, I'm not alone in it. I just want to throw that out there. Now, my guess is that, that most of you on some level, you can relate to that story, right? Most of you can think of a, a few warning signs or worse, a traffic law uh, that you decided to ignore for whatever reason. So maybe for some of you guys, the warning thing that you, you, you decided to ignore was a warning label. So you bought something or there was a product on something you were somewhere and you read the warning label and you're like, that's dumb, I'm not doing that, right? You just decided in your own brain, you're like, nope, not doing that. So, so I was thinking about that. There's actually a room right on the other side of this wall that we call the green room. And in that room is this big giant electrical transformer with these like massive signs all over it that are like, do not place anything on this. And there's not right now, probably because of the previous services, but almost every single week I go into this room, there is something sitting on top, like covering one of these signs, right? Someone puts a coffee cup there, their bag, a box, they're just like literally blocking the warning label. So maybe for some of you guys, it's a warning label that you ignored. Maybe for others of you, it was a warning from a doctor. So maybe you went into an appointment and they're like, hey, you know, it's not like super urgent, but your, your cholesterol is a little high and you could probably use to stand to lose a few pounds. And I'm a little nervous about the direction that your health is heading. And so, so I need you to do X things. And you're like, yeah, I don't know about, right? Like you, you decide to ignore the warning from the doctor. Maybe for some of you guys, your warning that you ignored came from a friend. So maybe you had this big decision you were gonna make and you had a friend who knew you and knew the situation and they, they just looked at you and were like, hey, I love you. I don't think you should do this. I don't think you should date that person. I don't think you should take that job. I don't think you should buy the thing. Like whatever it was, they gave you a warning and you decided, yeah, I think I'm gonna do it anyways, right? And so there's a lot of reasons we tend to do this. Uh, often I think uh, sometimes we do this because we don't take the particular warning very seriously. We're like, you know, I don't really think it's that big of a deal. That's overly dramatic. That's never gonna happen to me. And the person giving you the warning, you're like, you know, I, I just think you just need to relax and chill out. This is not that big of a deal. I think there are other times we ignore the warning because we think that we are the exception to the rule. So maybe we actually do think the warning is a good idea for most people, but I'm not most people. So maybe we think, you know, it's a good idea to drive that speed or to not turn left there or to not purchase that thing, but I'm not most people. I can handle this. I am careful enough. I am smart enough. I am experienced enough to overcome and not have to worry about the thing that most people need to worry about. Sometimes we think that we're the exception to it. So right now, we find ourselves in a series called Jesus Overall, and specifically, we're in a sub-series of that that is called Jesus Over Time. 
And one of the things that Tony talked about when he first launched his series was the fact that whenever we get this out of order, whenever we place whatever it is, anything over Jesus, when we get that out of order, that we are living a disordered life, that we are living outside of what is real and what is true about our world. And so specifically today, we're gonna talk about what does it look like to live a properly ordered life when it comes to our stuff, to all of our possessions. Let me be clear before we start that money is not bad and our stuff is not evil. In fact, the Bible actually teaches us that many of the things that we have, that they are gifts from God and they are meant to be enjoyed. But just like many other good things in our life, if we lose control of them, if we don't keep them in their proper place, then sometimes, sometimes those things can cause more harm than good. And I think when it comes to our stuff, one of the things that we're gonna find is that the Bible actually is filled with warning after warning after warning about our stuff. And just like a lot of the other warnings in our life, I think historically this is one of those warnings that we tend to ignore. So that's where we're headed today. So if you have a Bible with you, you can join me in Matthew 19. Matthew chapter 19. If you don't have one, there should be one in this, under the seat in front of you. And we're gonna be on page 800. Now the context of this story and this passage is this. There's a young man who approaches Jesus and he asks him the following question. He says, teacher, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? What good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, some of you guys will quickly notice this question. It is already flawed from the beginning because it, it has some assumptions in there that are not necessarily true. It assumes that it's actually possible to do something to inherit eternal life. Uh, but Jesus decides to engage this young man in, a, in, a, in the discussion anyways. And so after some back and forth, they, they start talking through some different commands. And again, they're going back and forth on some things. The young man responds to Jesus and he says, all of these I've kept. He says, Jesus, I have done everything the law has asked me to do. So Jesus, tell me, what is it that I still lack? So that's the question. That's the context. What do I still lack? Here's how Jesus responds to this young man. Matthew 19, starting in 21. Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. And so in response to this young man's question, Jesus says, I'm glad you're keeping so many commands and rules. It sounds like you're doing a really good job at that. But if you wanna know what you still lack, it's this. Jesus says, you are living a life like this. And God, God wants you to live a life like this. He says, the thing that you lack and the problem that you have is you are living a disordered life. He says, despite your ability to follow the rules, you have yet to truly allow God to be the king of your life. And the thing that rules over you and the thing that is standing in your way, it's all your stuff. It's all your possessions. And so Jesus tells him, he says, go and sell your possessions to remove this false God from his life. And then he actually invites this young man to come and follow him, which if you stop and think about it, is an incredible invitation. But the text tells us that he cannot bring himself to do it. It says the reason he can't do it is because he had great wealth, right? It's because he had so 
many things. He simply could not bring himself to do it. Now, one of the really interesting insights we get into this encounter is that it also says this. It says that the young man went away sad. That he went away sad. So instead of getting mad at Jesus or saying, Jesus, that's crazy, or Jesus, what you're asking is just far too great, but he doesn't say any of that. It simply says he went away sad. And the word Matthew uses here, it means to be marked by grief or sorrow or distress. And what this communicates to me is that deep in his soul, part of this young man really wanted to do it, right? That he didn't think the ask was crazy. He actually wanted to walk away from his stuff, right? Because if you think that this is a horrible idea, if someone presents you with a horrible trade and you go, you know what, I'm not gonna do it. You don't walk away sad. You walk away feeling good about yourself. You walk away feeling justified. You walk away feeling confident that I didn't just make a bad decision, I made the right decision. But the fact that he walked away sad shows me that he really wanted to do it, but he couldn't. It shows us that he couldn't do it because of his stuff, because on some level, the things that he had, they had a certain amount of control over him. It shows us that he didn't just own a bunch of stuff, but on some level, his stuff had started to own him. And so after this young man walks away, we're told that Jesus now turns to his disciples and he decides to use this little interaction as a teaching opportunity. And that lesson that he gives his disciples, it comes in the form of a warning. So here's the warning, verse 23. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. I want you guys to just think about that for a moment. And I want you to let the words of Jesus just kind of sink in and set in. Because Jesus says the more wealth and the more possessions a person has, the harder and the more difficult it will be for them to follow him. And this isn't the only place we find a warning like this. We actually find warnings like this all over the Bible. So if you were to turn to Luke chapter eight, you'd find the parable of the sower. Some of you guys are familiar with this. In this parable, Jesus uses an analogy of seeds and he warns us that there are certain people that don't grow or make it in their faith. And one of the primary warnings found in this parable is that it says many people are choked out by the riches of this life, by the pursuit of too much stuff. How about this one, 1 Timothy? Paul is writing to his, uh, his kind of young protege and he says this, he says, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Here's another one. Matthew chapter six, this is Jesus speaking himself. He says, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, right? Jesus literally says, do not store up a bunch of stuff. It's about as clear as you can get. Luke 12 find the parable of the rich fool. 
This man who has so much stuff that he needs to big, build himself bigger and bigger barns in which to put it all. And in this interaction Jesus has with the man he's telling this parable to, this is the warning that Jesus gives the man. He says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in what? In an abundance of possessions. Right? The conclusion is literally, don't be like this guy. Stop collecting so much stuff. The Bible is literally full of warning after warning after warning for those who chase after a lot of stuff and for those who have a lot of stuff. And this is probably just my opinion, but I think that these are some of the most ignored and most dismissed passages in all of Scripture. I think if I were to warn you, warn you and show you passages about uh, the dangers of stealing or lying or gossip or revenge, I think most of you, you would carefully consider those warnings. But when it comes to our stuff or the possibility that maybe, just maybe, all of us have too much stuff, I think we are quick to dismiss that idea. I think when we see these biblical warnings about have, having too many things, I think most of us think, my stuff? You mean my things? No, I don't have too much stuff. That guy has too much stuff and she has too much stuff, but I, I'm fine. I don't have too much stuff. My stuff is not a problem. My stuff does not get in the way. My stuff does not affect my ability to follow Jesus. And I think the reason we're so quick to dismiss these warnings is because we are immersed in a culture of consumerism, in a world that both teaches and practices the, literally the exact opposite of what these warnings say to us. And so we live in a world that teaches us that more stuff is actually the goal, not less. We live in a world that teaches us that whomever has the most stuff is the winner, not the person in danger. We live in a world that assumes that the more stuff someone has, the happier they must be. Right, like I want you to imagine for a moment that when you get home from this today, that your neighbor pulls into the driveway with a brand new BMW. I'm guessing most of us don't think to ourselves, wow, that, that guy must be miserable. I, I, I hope he's okay, right? Like, well, no, what do we think? We think, wow, that guy's lucky. Because we assume, because he has more things than us or nicer things than us, then he must be happier. He must be better off. Maybe even we think God must love him more, which is why God is blessing him and giving him so many nice things. We also live in an era where we are constantly bombarded with messaging that tells us day in and day out that we need more and more and more. So I did a little bit of research this week and found some, some very interesting stats on this. And so uh, according to a place called Statistia.com, uh, the U.S. spent over $480 billion in marketing last year. So think about this. They didn't spend $480 million in products they're selling you. They spent 480 or billion. They spent 480 billion in marketing to convince you to buy their products. That's crazy. Here's another one. Digital ad spend per person expected to be expected to amount to about $1000 per internet user in 2023. First of all, think about how many internet users there are. That's a lot of money, right? Right, that's where a big chunk of that 480 billion is going. And then think about the fact that someone is willing to spend $1,000 on you, you specifically, just with the little things that pop up on the internet, because they know they're going to make 10 times that back from you. 
right? Here's another one. Researchers estimate that we are exposed to over 400 ads per day. Now, some disclaimers with this one. This was a really hard number to track down and to like put in front of you with any level of certainty because it all depends on how you're counting and tracking this. And so when they're talking about how many ads you're exposed to per day, is that like when you're checking your email, the little pop-ups, is that the billboard you drove past? Is that the commercial you watched? Uh, or does it also include like, hey, I, wa- I drove past that building and I saw their logo. And I walked by this guy and his shirt had a brand on it. Or like how many things are they counting when they do this? And so what I, what I can tell you is this is by far the lowest number that I found. Like if, when you get home, if you Google how many ads am I exposed to per day, most of the top hits, the answers, will be between four and 10,000. I didn't know what to do with that. I didn't know if I could even trust that. So I thought, I'm gonna give you guys the lowest number I can find because I think that number's crazy, right? Like if it's higher than that, it gets even worse. And the reason that number's crazy to me is because most of these ads, we all know this, these ads are customized and they are engineered to target us and to draw us in based on your age and your preferences and your search history. Right, they're all designed to like whisper in your ear like, you need more, you need more stuff. And it works, it works. On top of all of that, as I'm thinking about this, I'm realizing and right now it is easier to buy something than it has ever been at any point in human history. Right, like you get your phone out right now and with a few swipes of your thumb, you could buy something and there's a chance it could be sitting on your doorstep before you get home from service today. Right, it's crazy. The reality is we are swimming in a sea of consumerism, right? This is the air that all of us breathe, which makes it really, really hard to take the warnings of scripture about our stuff to take them seriously because we are so immersed in it. It is so normal to us. There have been a handful of moments in my life, like two or three, where I feel like God has, for just a moment in time, plucked me out of our consumeristic world and given me eyes to see things about this that I needed to see. One of those moments came in my life in 2013. So I was living in Akron at the time, probably making a left turn somewhere. And uh, we were working with some refugees. So uh, some of you guys don't know this, but Akron, Ohio is actually like an official United States relocation city for refugees. And so um, the refugees we were working with, they were uh, Burmese refugees. So they had fled their home country of Burma. They had made their way to a refugee camp in Thailand. And then after X amount of time, the government will send them to these officially designated relocation places around the world, one of which is Akron, Ohio. So we're working with local, local refugees in Akron. And the church I was with with at the time thought, wouldn't it be cool if we could partner with the refugee camp where they're coming from, right? Because literally, like, we're working with people here and, like, we go interact with their families who are still living in Thailand. And so I get to go on this trip to this refugee camp, and I get to spend a couple of days and nights in a refugee camp. So here's a picture of the refugee camp. This is just a part of it. And so this refugee camp we got in the back of a truck, Once we got, like, so we fly into Thailand and then we get in the back of a truck and we drive about two hours through the mountains, the middle of nowhere to get to the refugee camp because they don't want refugees just leaving, right? They want them to like run the system. And so it's literally in the middle of the nowhere. It's on the side of a mountain and you get in, there are 80,000 people in the particular refugee camp we went to. And it is filled with nothing but bamboo huts and literally nothing else. Because the people who get there, they are fleeing their home country and they show up with the clothes on their back, and that's it. They own nothing. 
like literally nothing, right? And this is one of those moments where you're like, you are experiencing, where I was experiencing true poverty, right? We have an idea in our mind of like what poor, poor is, and then you go to a place like this, you're like, no, no, this is poor. This is poverty. So literally they owned nothing. There was no electricity. There was no running water. If you were to give them a $100 bill, they wouldn't know what to do with it. There's no currency. Like there is no system of anything. They don't even have a sustainable food source of their own in there. There's a handful of animals running around. I think there's a duck you can see under there. And then the government would drop off like giant pallets of food and bags of rice and these they called them these little meal things. I don't, I don't know if I would consider them meals, but it was the things that they got, right? And again, it's one of those rare moments in time where I'm going from the world that we all know and I'm being plucked out of it and I'm dropped into this place that I'm like, okay, God, I, I see this. You're teaching me something. I actually have a lot of stuff, right? And so I feel like God is teaching me this lesson, but God, God wasn't done with me yet. And so by the end of this trip, we're having a meeting and there's a little church inside this refugee camp that we had been working with. And uh, someone on our team just asked the people in this room, they said, hey, what, what are some ways we can pray for you? And there was this older lady there who said, this was her response and I'll never forget it. She said, I want you to pray for my kids, pray for our children, because when they leave here, they stop following Jesus. She said, what happens is when we're in here, we are dependent on God for literally everything. And then they leave here. And they go to America and all of their needs are met and they stop following God, right? And so I went into this experience thinking I'm a, I'm a pastor, I'm gonna theologically I'm trained, I'm gonna go help these people and there's this random old lady in this refugee camp who probably doesn't even own a Bible who is schooling me in the ways of Jesus. Because I thought the problem was they didn't have enough stuff. I thought the ones who got out and got to America were the lucky ones. And this lady's saying, no, 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 the ones who get out, they're the ones who are in danger because they're about to get a whole bunch of stuff. Let me say this again, our money and our stuff, it is not inherently bad. It is not evil. God has given us so many things that we were meant to enjoy. And I also don't think any of us need to feel guilty for living where we live. Where like the vast majority of us, we did not choose to be born into America, into one of the wealthier nations. This is where God, for whatever reason, in his sovereignty has strategically placed us. I don't think we need to feel guilty about that. But living in one of the wealthier nations in the world does come with certain dangers. And the warnings of Jesus, the warnings are still true. And it is so hard to see it when we are immersed in it. It's all we know. It is so normal to us. But just like the young man in our story, I think that our stuff, I think it has some control over us too. I think probably more than we realize and probably more than we want to admit. And so the obvious question that we need to ask ourselves is really what are we gonna do with Jesus's warnings, right? Anytime you're faced with a warning, you've got a couple options. You can dismiss it. You can decide that it's not that big of a deal, that it's not that serious, or, hey, that's a good warning for somebody else, right? I'm the exception. You could go that route, or you can choose to heed God's warnings. And given the space and time and history in which we live, I think it, I found myself asking the question, like, is it even possible to live this life, right? Given our context and given how normal it is to have so many things, is this even possible? And I think the answer is, on our own, probably not. But with God's help, 
think it's absolutely possible. Now, I definitely don't have all the answers on this, right? I am swimming in the same seas that you guys are. And to be honest, as I was working through this talk this week, one of the things that I came to realize is that I am not very good at this, right? That I, am, I, I struggle with this just like a lot of us probably do. And I think that it is really hard to truly break free from the grips of materialism and all of our stuff. But I do think the Bible can help point us in some really helpful directions. And so with the rest of our time together, I have three things that I think we need to consider in light of Jesus' warnings. Three things to consider that if we want to make the shift from this to this, we really got to think these things through. So here's the first one. I just gave you a sneak preview. Uh, Acknowledge that God owns everything. Acknowledge that God owns everything. So the starting place to properly reordering our lives is to understand the reality that we don't actually own anything. That all of our stuff, all of our toys, all that we have, that in reality, it all belongs to God. Now, if that is a new idea to you, I understand that is quite a mental shift to make. So let me show you a couple of places we see this. Psalm 24, verse one. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Job 41, 11, this is God speaking. He says, who is a claim against me that I must pay? Everything under heaven belongs to me. Psalm 50, verses 10 through 12. For every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the insects in the fields are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. One of the things the Bible clearly teaches is that everything that exists in this world, it ultimately belongs to him. And if everything belongs to him, that also means that none of it, none of it belongs to us. And if none of it belongs to us, That means that we need to make the mental shift from being an owner to being a steward. If everything belongs to God, if it all is simply on loan from him, that means that we are all managers, not owners. It means we are managers of the things that God has entrusted to us. And so one of the first questions I think we need to ask ourselves is this, is simply how do I view my stuff? How do I view my stuff? Do you view your stuff as yours? something that you have worked hard for, that you deserve because of all the long hours you have put in at the office? Or do you view your stuff as something which is on loan from your creator? Are you living in line with the reality that Jesus owns your stuff? Or are you living a disordered life? I think if we're gonna have any chance at getting this right, we have to start here. So step number one is coming to the realization that God owns everything. Number two is simplify. It's simplify. If according to the scriptures, the problem starts with the accumulation of too many things, then logically speaking, part of the solution has to involve simplifying and the reduction of some of those things. Now, to be completely honest, I have no idea what that should look like for you. I think this practice of simplicity, it probably looks different for every single one of us. 
But what I do know is that when the Bible talks about the dangers of having too much stuff, more often than not, it pairs that with the idea and the importance of contentment. So if we go back to one of the passages that we read earlier from Paul, one of the warnings that he gave us, check out what Paul says to Timothy right before the warning. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Then he goes in to the warning. See the same idea in in Hebrews chapter 13. He says, keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. According to the Bible, one of the keys to avoiding the allure of the next thing is the art of being content. Because it's only when you can learn to be content with less that you have the ability to let go of this constant need for more and more and more. Now, one of the questions that some of you guys might have been asking at some point throughout this morning is, hey, I thought we were in a series about Jesus over our time. Right? We've spent this whole time talking about stuff. How in the world does time factor into this? So uh, insight into one thing is that later in this summer, we're actually gonna go into a series that's specifically about Jesus over um, our like, treasure and our money and some of our wealth stuff. So we're actually gonna have a whole section on that. But we also felt like this really belonged here. And here's why. Because when we think of the driving force behind much of our busyness, you know what we think it is? We think it is this desire for more and more, and more. Because all this stuff, this stuff takes up a lot of time. A lot of time to acquire, a lot of time to use, a lot of time to care for, a lot of time to maintain. And so in some of us, when we have a desire to live a certain lifestyle, when we feel like we just wanna eat out whenever we want to, or drive a certain type of car, or live in a house of a certain size, or have the latest version of that thing, like whatever it is, All of those things, those don't just cost us money. They also dictate and determine how we spend a vast majority of our time. So for example, uh, this probably isn't for everyone, but for some of us in the room, some of us need to think through why we work the way that we do. Maybe some of us work long hours or extra hours, not because we have to, but we do so to acquire a certain title or to facilitate a certain lifestyle. And again, the question I would ask, what it, but what is that costing you? So some of you guys might not have seen this yet, but obviously we're doing a whole bunch of renovations in our building. And one of the areas that we're renovating is our Power Kids check-in area. And as part of that renovation, one of the things that we added to, to the wall was a wall piece that looks like this. And this is a visual reminder of just how precious and fleeting our time is with our children. It's a reminder to those of us who are parents that our time will not last forever and that we should be careful and use our time wisely. And one of my fears is that many of us are wasting away a whole lot of that time at work, not because we have to work that much, but because of our desire to always have more and more and more, right? Because somehow we gotta pay for that stuff So we gotta work more and more and more. 
I think one of the ironies of this is that if you talk to someone whose kids are grown, right, they are now empty nesters, and someone who has achieved the financial success that many of us are still chasing after, if you talk to someone like that, that person will often tell you the thing that they now long for is not anything to do with their stuff, but what they wish they could do is they wish they could trade a bunch of their stuff, and they could go back, and they could have more time with their kids, This desire for more and more and more does not just cost us financially. It also costs us a whole lot of time. And the biblical kind of counterpunch, if you will, to this desire for more and more and more is to learn the value of contentment. It is learning to simplify and to be okay with less and less. And so in light of that truth, that reality, I have three reflection questions I want you guys to consider this week. So I'll show you guys the questions And then you either need to take a note or I want you to take out your phone and take a picture of it so you can actually like remember these and ask these this week. So let me walk through them first. So in light of that truth, here's three reflection questions for you. The first one's this. Is there anything that I need to sell, get rid of, or scale back on specifically because it is hindering my ability to love Jesus or live out his commands? Let me read that again because I know that's a lot. Is there anything I need to sell, get rid of, or scale back on because it is hindering my ability to love Jesus or live out his commands. Here's the second one. What do I own that is consuming my time? Is there anything that you own that is consuming your time? Here's the third one. Is there anything I would be unwilling to give up if God asked me to? Is there anything that I would struggle to let go of if God asked me to give it up? So your homework assignment this week is to ask yourself those questions. It is to reflect on that. You can take a picture of that, go ahead and do it. Now, if you're feeling really gutsy, Tony told me I was supposed to triple dog dare you. So you're triple dog dared, here's the dare. I want you to ask either your spouse or a friend to answer these questions on your behalf for you. You groaned. That's why he told me to triple dog dare you because he knew you wouldn't want to do that. You're like, "Mm, that's not going to go well. I don't want to ask that question, right? Step number one, acknowledge that God owns everything. Step number two is simplify, which leads to number three, which is live generously, live generously. With that one, I'm going to actually invite the band to come back up. Now, in reality, we could spend an entire talk, probably an entire series unpacking what does it actually look like and mean like mean to live generously. So for time's sake, we're not gonna do that this morning. But what I do wanna do is this. I wanna, when I was thinking through these final points, I strategically put this one last because I think it is the natural result of getting these first two right. Let me tell you what I mean by that. So when a follower of Jesus, when you take a follower of Jesus who understands that everything they have is on loan from God, and a follower of Jesus who is constantly asking God, God questions like, God, how do you want me to invest your stuff? God, where do you want me to direct your resources? God, where do you want me to pour the things that you have given me? When you take someone who thinks that way and who gets it, and you combine that with someone who is also content, someone who has learned to simplify, someone who has learned to live with less and live within their means, when you take those two things and you combine them, What you get is a person who is perfectly positioned to live a life of generosity. You get a person who instead of walking around looking to fill some void with more and more and more, you get one who is overflowing with the generosity that they have experienced 
and received and found in Jesus. And so let me say this again, our stuff and our possessions, they are not inherently bad and they are not evil, but there is a real danger that can come with them. And I think all of us would do well to heed the warnings of Jesus and to make sure that the stuff that he has given us, graciously given us, never gets in the way of the God who is giving them. Let me pray for us and the band will lead us out. Father, you are, you are so, so good. And God, you have given all of us an abundance of things. God, we just, we wanna express our gratitude for that. God, you have given us so, so much. But God, I personally want to acknowledge that not everything that I own is actually a gift from you. God, there are things that I own that are a result purely of my own greed and my own selfishness and maybe even my own insecurities. So God, I just ask that you would forgive me for that. God, would you give me the wisdom to discern and know the difference between the ones that are gifts from you and the things that are just selfishly mine? God, would you show us the things in our life that stand in the way of following you and living out the things you've called us to? God, would you give us the ability to see the things that are good that you've entrusted us with and show us how we can direct those resources to to serve you and, and love people and advance your kingdom? God, we just want to acknowledge that all of this is really, really hard for us. God, we are immersed in a culture that does not make this easy And just by the sinful natures we have, God, we want more. God, we need your help. We need you to help free us from the grips of our stuff. We cannot do this on our own. Thank you for your grace with us in the moments where we struggle with this. Would you help us get it right? Father, we love you. We thank you. We ask all of this in your son's name.